Hi there. Welcome to Mental Health Professionals Network podcast series. MHPN's aim is to promote and celebrate interdisciplinary, collaborative mental health care. Hi, my name is Mark Creamer and welcome to this sixth and final episode in our podcast series on trauma and mental health. Over the last five episodes, we've looked at several aspects around the nature and treatment of psychological or or mental health responses to the experience of trauma, and we've talked to many experts who've helped us to explore these issues. In this episode, we're going to talk to some more experts, but this time we're talking to experts by experience. And I'm very pleased to be able to welcome three people who've undergone some quite different potentially traumatic events and who have responded to those experiences in different ways. So let me introduce our three very special guests for this podcast. Ginger Gorman is a multi-award winning investigative journalist with a passion for covering social justice issues. She's worked in print, radio and television with several media organisations, but particularly with the ABC. And for those of you listening from overseas, the ABC is our national broadcaster. Welcome, Ginger. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm just wondering, Ginger, as as a journalist yourself, do you think that journalists generally have much awareness about the potential psychological impact of their work? Absolutely not. And I think what we need to think about is how journalists and journalism started out. So it was kind of a tough trade that was meant for blokes. So really what we were taught was to put up and shut up, really, and that if you couldn't handle things like violent crime cases or horrendous car crashes that you were going to where people had died, then you really weren't cut out for the job. So really we are taught to not complain about it and get on with it. Like I fear so many other professions, actually, certainly our emergency service, and we'll talk to Jeff in a minute, but perhaps the military, but hopefully it is beginning to change. But but anyway, uh, thanks for that, Ginger. And actually, while I think of it, one of the resources that will pop up on the MHPN website is a link to the DART Foundation for Journalism and Trauma. So you'd be aware of that, of course, Ginger. Yeah, so the DART Centre, which I can talk about a bit later, they actually helped me get fantastic psychiatric help when I was really experiencing trauma. So they are based in the US, but we have an Asia-Pacific branch, and thank God. So the DART Centre is really starting to change this culture that I was talking about and go into newsrooms and start helping us think of journalists as first responders that really need psychological help in the same way as emergency services personnel or military personnel, you know, a lot of journalists are doing things like going into war zones or covering bushfires where people are dying. So, yeah, we really do need that kind of access to support. Absolutely. And always good to give uh, data a bit of a plug. Anyway, thanks, Ginger. Our next guest today is Jeff Evans. Jeff served for 20 years with the Australian Army's Special Operations Command and also 12 years as a firefighter with the Fire and Rescue Service in New South Wales. He has worked with some of our most disabled veterans for many years, including actually as a founder of a charity called Homes for Heroes. He's been on the Prime Ministerial Advisory Council on Veterans Mental Health since 2014. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Mark. I think that we'll probably come back to this later, but I know that you're also in a leadership role with something called Disaster Relief Australia. Can you just tell us very briefly what, what that is? 
Yeah, Disaster Relief Australia it, uh, combines the skills and experience of emergency first responders and veterans, and we send them out into disaster zones. And the reason we do that is because we've we've learned over a long period of time that while symptom reduction for people who are experiencing challenges, and even people who are in, who are in transition and just lost, is a very necessary first step. But they also need a sense of purpose in their life, and we aim to do that by giving them a sense of responsibility by surrounding them with like-minded people and giving them a new sense of identity. That's so important, isn't it? It's so important. And, and um, yeah, we will definitely come back to that because I think when we start talking about recovery, that, that stage is, is crucial. Thanks, Jeff. Our final guest today is Sarah. Sarah is a model agent and has worked not only in Melbourne, but also in Sydney and for four years in London also, which I must say sounds all very glamorous to me. She now lives here in Melbourne with her husband, three children and her German shepherd. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks ever so much for talking to us today. Thanks for having me, Mark. I know that you're a, uh, a keen traveller, Sarah, and I know that you've got several um, family connections in Europe. Do you think that we'll ever get back to the kinds of international travel that we enjoyed before the pandemic? I certainly hope so. Maybe that's the optimist in me. But I, I think that um, I'm not sure travelling will ever be the same, much like how 9-11 changed the way we travel. I'm imagining COVID will do the same. Um, and it's certainly like many aspects of our lives. We're sort of now looking at it from another perspective and thinking, OK, how can we do this same, same but different? But um, yeah. I think it's too, too sad to think that we'll never go travelling again as we used to. I think so. We're, we're all desperately looking forward to it, aren't we? I know I am. Okay, thank you, Sarah. So, Ginger, Jeff and Sarah have kindly agreed to share their experiences with us today um, about what happened to them and about their reactions and about their pathway to recovery. So, to begin with, I'm going to ask each of them in turn to tell us very briefly about their traumatic experiences and also about how it affected them. And then we'll have a broader discussion about what helped them in terms of their recovery. So if I could turn to you first, Ginger. Uh, during your time with the ABC, you wrote a story about gay men choosing surrogacy. Can you tell us what happened after that? Yeah, so <laughs> my journey is a long and complicated one. But basically, uh, my journey into cyber hate started when I did this story that you've mentioned. And it was essentially a lighthearted feature article about these men. It was this part of a series of nine on the human rights of LGBTIQ plus people. And these two men, a few years later, were arrested and convicted as members of a horrendous paedophile gang. So this child that they told me they had had by a surrogacy in Russia, they had actually purchased from their Russian his Russian mother and um, they had been horrendously abusing this child. So essentially this feature article that I did about them as lovely gay parents was completely wrong. And then... As a result of that, I became target of this orchestrated online hate campaign. And so my kids were threatened. We got death threats. I mean, it's hard to, if you haven't been a target of that kind of cyber hate event, it's hard to imagine the scale of it. But yeah, it was absolutely terrifying. So that led me a bit later, once I'd recovered from that horrendous experience, to write my book, Troll Hunting. And uh, troll hunting was, you know, uh, the thing that really caused me to get horrendous PTSD. So I didn't understand how violent and how dark it was going to be. If you can imagine the Christchurch killer, that's the kind of guy that ended up in my book. So people 
think that it's just people being mean online, but actually what was happening was these predator trolls were doing a lot of real life crime. So for example, my book opens up with a high school shooter who is also a predator troll. And those things were happening in real time as I was writing the book. So yeah, the result was by the end of writing the manuscript, like I was just a complete mess. I was having horrendous nightmares where I would see all these dead bodies on this road that I was walking on and there were all the dead people in my book and then I couldn't sleep, I couldn't stay asleep. Um, I was taking a lot of sleeping tablets and I was just drinking all the time and I was angry. And then I was also crying all the time. So I was screaming at my children, um, crying all the time. And I just suddenly thought, you know, like I'm a mess. And I think actually the only thing that made me get help really was that I was not very far off having to go into the public eye and promote my book and talk about my book. And I wanted to do that because I wanted to see this social change. But yeah, that's that's really when I kind of had this moment of thinking I can't actually face the public like this and I can't parent my children either. It's, it's an extraordinary story, isn't it? And, I, you know, I was thinking as you were talking there that the history of trauma probably goes back as long as humans have been around. But this particular type of experience is, is obviously relatively new. And I guess I, I'm frightened that perhaps it's becoming increasingly common, actually. Yeah, I mean, cyber hate targets do experience extreme PTSD, and that isn't really documented yet. Like, since I've become an expert in this area, it's really interesting. People write to me all the time and say, I'm an extreme cyber hate dark target. I've tried to suicide. I've lost my job. I'm not safe in my home, etc., etc. Like all these real world harms. And they say to me, where are the psychologists and psychiatrists that are trained in this that can help me? And I don't actually know if there are any in Australia. It's a very new kind of sort of trauma, I suppose. PTSD isn't, obviously, as you say, and I'm sure Jeff will talk about that in a minute. I'm really interested to hear what he's got to say. But, yeah, it, it is very real, like, the trauma that you experience sure. from that because you're basically being hunted a lot of the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. It must be terrifying. Um, and as you as you explained there, just it, a whole lot of effects on you emotionally and behaviourally in terms of your relationships and so on. So clearly a, a, an extremely difficult thing to cope with. Yeah, and I mean, I remember thinking, I looking at my phone ringing and thinking, I can't answer it. Like I had a real agoraphobia as well all of a sudden, which is really uncharacteristic. So I'm not sure if that's a normal symptom of yeah. PTSD or not. But oh, yeah. yeah, the the effects were extreme. But I probably wouldn't have gotten help because of that tough journalism thing I talked about earlier, unless I had to face the public. Yeah. That was really the thing that made me think, you know. It's an interesting point, and, and we'll certainly talk in a minute about, about how difficult it can be to get help. But unfortunately, we've got to move on. I'm, I'm sorry I'm going to have to keep moving people on. But thank you so much for that, uh, Ginger. Um, Jeff, let me turn to you. Uh, can you just tell us very briefly about the kinds of experiences that you had, perhaps in the military and perhaps in your, in your fire service, that really resulted in some of your later mental health problems? Yeah, so the Australian military had been operating in Afghanistan since 2002, and I, I had left the, the army in 2001 and became a reservist, and I was working as a firefighter. And although I saw, you know, my fair share of, of grisly accidents, I'd, I'd never really been affected by it. In 2008, for the first time since World War II, my unit was mobilised and sent to Afghanistan, and I found war to just be a completely different uh, 
uh, event to anything else I've ever experienced. My, my introduction to combat was about two weeks in when a friend of mine stepped on a mine about uh, 50 metres in front of me and was blown apart and we recovered his body and it was my job to navigate us through a minefield out of there in the dark. So that was kind of my, my introduction. A couple of months later, um, I was just, we were in a patrol base. We were, t- we were targeting a known Taliban um, commander who was who had moved into an area to try and target Australian troops and our job was to take him out to keep our soldiers alive. Um, and just before we stepped off on a mission, uh, the Taliban fired a rocket at us which hit a friend of mine in the chest about a metre away from me, um, and without going into gru- too grisly detail, you can imagine the effects of modern munitions on the human body at, at a metre. And then we went up and raided that Taliban commander's house and stayed there for two days, completely surrounded, and we killed 22 uh, enemy combatants, of which I accounted for quite a few myself. Just before we came home, um, we chased a Taliban bomb maker into a room at about four o'clock in the morning. Uh, and he fired on us from a metre away and we grenaded the room and he fired on us again and we grenaded the room and when we made entry on the room we discovered the room was full of women and children and we'd killed five children. The next morning when we when we walked out into the desert I just remember laying uh, laying on the ground in the desert just trying desperately not to feel anything while this terrible um, dust storm buffeted us and I remember just laying there thinking that the gods are angry with us. We've upset the, the, the balance of the, of the earth and the gods are angry with us, even though I'm not religious. My second tour was actually easier because about two months in, I stood on, uh, uh, sorry, the, the vehicle I was riding in uh, drove over a bomb and it crushed my spine and gave me a brain injury. It was powerful enough to blow out the fillings in my mouth. Wow. I mean, these are extraordinary stories, Jeff, that I think uh, any of us who haven't been there impossible really to imagine what it was like and I think the the um, complexities that you just alluded to there about not only the the threat to your life but also the moral issues and so on that must be so difficult I've heard you uh, talk about your journey to recovery before and I'm looking forward to hearing about it again but at this point can you just tell us very briefly something about how it affected you perhaps what sort of problems you developed as a result, and I wonder just to start with, um, did you recognise that, that, that things were not going well? Were you aware of it yourself? No, I certainly didn't. Um, my wife took me to couples counselling a few months after I got home from my first tour in Afghanistan. And when I sat down with the counsellor, and that was at VVCS, which is interesting because they're now called Open Arms, but they, they have been dealing with Vietnam veterans for 40 or 50 years, you know, and they know trauma when they see it. And as soon as I sat down, he said, you've got PTSD and, and a and I knew it immediately. Um, I stayed there for seven years receiving therapy, which we can talk about later. But what, what I found was I talk about the high and the low side. So the high side was I, I would physically and emotionally relive um, traumatic events. When I first talked to a counsellor about being out of Afghanistan, he threw down his pen and he said, Jeff, before I did this job, I used to counsellor and counsel um, heroin addicts. And you sound just like a junkie that's had his first hit because I was riding this high of combat. There, there's no high like combat for adrenaline and I'm talking about airstrikes and mortar bombs and, and, and gunfights gun um, but at the same time I found I was completely numb uh, I would I would patrol around the streets like a co- tightly coiled um, spring waiting to react to combat uh, at, at any time um, everything seemed really trivial to me I couldn't focus on anything I didn't want to listen to the radio um, all I wanted to do really was go back to Afghanistan because in Afghanistan, your nervous system being locked on is actually a good thing, hence why people do multiple tours. Um, I would drink every night. So on the low side, I would drink every night to try and keep a lid on the cauldron of all those traumatic events that I'd not really had time to process, afraid that if I let even one uh, memory or feeling escape that I'd be completely 
um, overwhelmed by them all. I, I slept poorly. I, I didn't have nightmares often, but I had lots of daymares. So um, things would just come back to me triggered by a noise or something. But if I was trying to sleep and a door slammed, I was in combat and on my knees on the floor, ready to fight um, immediately. I couldn't sit still. Every time I got somewhere, I wanted to be somewhere else immediately to be, to be distracted all the time. Anything not to have to think and be in the present struggled to concentrate, my memory was bad, uh, I ex experienced depression. After a long time, I started to think that maybe my family would be better off without me, which put a really big strain on our marriage because my wife and children obviously didn't see that way. I tended to treat my children like I was a, a drill sergeant and I really struggled to connect emotionally with them or, or to connect to anything really. I could see that the best years of my life with my children were passing me by and I couldn't feel anything. Um, and even though I could rationalise it, you know, it, it, it led to quite a severe depression because I was watching this, this amazing time with my kids uh, go past. Yeah, I mean, it was such a pervasive kind of thing, affecting every aspect of your life, isn't it? And that, that idea about, you know, those strategies that were very adaptive in combat in Afghanistan are so unadaptive, so maladaptive when you get back, but so difficult to switch off. Thank you very much, Jeff, and, and, and I really look forward to hearing a bit about what you thought was helpful in that journey of, of seven years of recovery. Our final guest today is Sarah. Sarah, you were on your way back to Australia from London in December 2004, and you stopped off in Thailand on PP Island for a holiday on the way. Tell us what happened on Boxing Day morning. Okay. Firstly, I just want to say that your, Ginger and Jeff, your stories are incredible. Amazing. Just sitting here practically shaking, hearing what you've both gone through. So, wow. Amazing. Um, but yes, I found myself on the beach in PP Island on Boxing Day, um, and uh, it was a, a really weird thing happening with the tide. I don't know if you're familiar with PP Island, but it's sort of like the, dare I say, the Chanel. It's sort of like two bays that meet and there's just a little belt in the middle. So we were on one side of the bay and the tide was just doing really weird things. It was coming right up to the shore and then being sucked right out and right up to the shore and being sucked right out. And it was a full moon that night and I actually just thought, oh, wow, really lucky to see this sort of lunar tide connection thing happening in Thailand. Didn't think anything of it and people were looking at the water and pointing out. And then looking really, really far out to the horizon, you could see the long tail boats, which are traditional in Thailand, they were almost somersaulting in and you could see it's like, oh, hang on, you, you, the force of which the waves were tumbling these boats in. And locals started yelling out, run, run, and just followed orders, ran, and we ran into, I was travelling with a friend, and we ran into our hotel through the lobby, over the reception desk, through the lobby, into basically the staff quarters of this hotel, and we had nowhere else to go. It was totally enclosed. So we just, I, I remember standing there sort of huddled like this, just waiting, thinking, I don't even know what what's going to happen. And the wave came, the tsunami came and hit us, and I remember thinking, oh, Oh my God, this is how I'm going to die. I, I'm going to die. This is it. There was, there was no question. I mean, it was like being in a, in a washing machine with all your contents of your home with you. Um, so we're just getting tumbled along. And I remember thinking, if I just relax and surrender myself, this will be over a whole lot quicker. If I struggle, it's going to be a lot more painful. Um, so I came up for air once and then got pushed under again. I think the water must have sucked out, then surged back in. Um, and we eventually, for want of a better term, landed further into the village. Um, and it was basically, again, we were at about the second floor level. Um, there was, you could see the water was all around us, um, destruction everywhere. There was petrol, you know, you can see petrol on the water. 
There was an apartment on fire. These guys were sort of hanging over their balconies trying to pull people out of the water. So I eventually got pulled over this balcony into somebody's apartment or flat or, and then realised that that was what was on fire. So we had to climb out a window, get back onto the ground and sort of everyone was just saying, run to higher ground, there's another one coming, there's another one coming. It just didn't have time to think. So we climbed back uh, up a, a hill into this sort of hinterland, um, but on high ground and spent the night there. Uh, didn't really, still didn't really know what had happened. We weren't, things were getting filtered around. There was a lot of whispers going on as to, you know, tsunami, what's a tsunami? I'd never even heard of a tsunami. And then um, in the morning, so we would have spent probably 24 hours up there. And in the morning came down and just got the scope of what had happened and the devastation. I mean, pee was flattened. There was just bodies, injuries like I've never seen before. And there was a uh, an Australian guy actually who was sort of assessing people and saying, look, if you need urgent medical attention, go to the helipad. If you don't need ur- urgent medical attention, just go to the pier and wait to be taken to the mainland. So, I mean, I was injured, but it was quite obvious that I was considering the injuries I'd witnessed. I knew I did not require a helipad. So I went to the pier waiting to be taken to the mainland. And on the pier, they were one half, it was a tiny little jetty. And one half of the jetty was bodies lined up of, of people who hadn't survived and the other side of the jetty was survivors waiting to get off the island and onto the mainland. It's an extraordinary experience, I must say. I, I mean, obviously one that, that most people never never go through. Um, you did, though, get home. You got home safely. And yeah, it took me about two nights to get home as I had nothing. I had no passport, no money, so it sort of took two nights. I, think I got home on the thir- 30th of December, so maybe three nights to, to by the time I got home. Just um, very briefly, before we go on and talk about um, what helped in recovery, did, were there any kind of immediate effects for you? I'm, I'm interested to begin with about whether you felt a need to tell everybody about what had happened. Um, I remember when I called my mother uh, and I said to her, look, I, this has just been so horrendous. I just, I just need to get home. I, I don't ever want to talk about this. This is just so horrendous. And I was really, really shaken up, uh, understandably. So my mother had sort of PR'd everybody before I came home and said, she's coming home. She doesn't want to talk about it. You know, just be wary. Don't ask her a thousand questions. But something happened. By the time I got home, I, I, I felt I was, I, I talked about it. I mean, it was, it was hard to ignore. It was everywhere. It was the front page of every paper. It was 24 hour coverage on every news channel. And, and I think that really helped process. I mean, I, I really was, and I, I found myself watching it and people saying, you sure you want to watch this? And I, I found it really, um, for me, it really helped sort of understand what had happened and, and how it had happened and, and especially because it had affected so many different countries and the different countries and, yeah, for, for me, I went from thinking I would never, ever want to talk about it to talking about it quite freely and, and there was a real fascination. People really wanted to know what had happened and how was it and, what, you know, that firsthand. I'm, I'm sure they did. And, and we'll talk more about that in a minute because I think, you know, I think that is so important in recovery, of course. I know when we spoke before you talked about having trouble with some nightmares, but I'm interested particularly in your fear of a recurrence because you were telling me that it wasn't really a fear of going back to a beach, but you did talk about fear of... Um, well, fear of the, the feelings, wasn't it? Yeah, I guess what triggers me um, now is just, it, well, it's knowing how things can go from the totally ordinary, standing on a beach, looking at a beautiful beach in Thailand, to completely terrifying. Um, and I guess for me, a trigger is like 
the Beirut bombings or, you know, the London terrorist attacks or anything where, and I I just think to myself, oh, God, you know, I think to how normal those days are. People travelling on a bus, going to work in London, and then suddenly it's just catastrophic terror. Um, that I never want to experience ever again. And I, I guess I can rationalise and think it's probably highly unlikely I'll ever be in a tsunami again of that magnitude, I hope. But I worry that I'm going things will, that terror will come again without warning and just show up. And that, mm. that's, that's, I guess, a trigger for me. Uh, absolutely. That, that fear of the fear. Anyway, thank you very much indeed, uh, Sarah. And look, thanks to everybody for sharing those stories with us. They, they are clearly all three extremely powerful experiences, but very different. And I think, you know, when we work in the trauma field, one of the things that we do not get into is trying to objectively say, well, that was worse than that. And it's such an easy trap, I think, for people to fall into. But having said that, you know, I think in the early um, episodes of this series, we did talk about some of the factors that may influence um, the reactions. And, and one of them was the degree of threat to life. And one of the things that's come through in all three of your stories is the very powerful threat to your, to your own lives and to, and to those of other people as well. But we also talked about the importance of the duration of the experiences and the recurrence of experiences and so on. And I guess that we are picking up differences there between, well, just for example, Jeff, who, who, whose experiences went on repeatedly over many years, really. Ginger's who, who also went on for some time and Sarah's more contained. And, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of factors that influence how someone responds and, and how someone recovers. But, but maybe that's one of them that, that, that may, may make it slightly easier or more difficult to recover. So I'd like to move on now, if we could, and talk about this process of recovery. And I've got a few questions, but I'd really like you, all three of you, to just jump in and, and um, add things or disagree or whatever at any point, if you like. So I'd really like you to think about what, what was the most important uh, thing or what were some of the most important things in helping you to recover from the experiences? And maybe, uh, Ginger, will come back to you and, and just kick off with you. Um, Clearly, acknowledging that it was a problem was, was a, a first important step. Look, it is really hard to ask for help. And I honestly don't think I would have unless I had to face the public. So I was at this point where I'd written this really traumatic book and I knew people were in grave danger and were dying because of what was happening on the internet. And actually, my book came out six weeks before the Christchurch massacre, which is the kind of thing that I was trying to stop. So I had this problem where I was an absolute psychological basket case. And like Jeff was describing, I had suicidal ideation as well. I could really clearly see how I was going to do that. And I just thought, I can't face a camera crew. I can't get on the radio. How am I going to talk about this? So that was actually the thing that motivated me to get help. And I wrote this email to Kate McMahon from the Dart Centre for Trauma in Journalism. And I basically just said, I'm a mess. And she was the exact right person to contact because she then referred me to Professor Megan O'Donnell from the Phoenix Centre for Post-Traumatic Mental Health. So when I was saying, I'm drinking, I'm dancing, I was doing all these risk-taking behaviours, some of which I won't go into in case my mother listens to this podcast. Mm. But, um, you know, she said some of them were pretty full-on and she said, oh, that's absolutely typical. You know, she was really reassuring. And she did really um, specific cognitive behaviour therapy with me for journalists 
suffering trauma. And I just found that incredibly useful. That thing about finding the right person is crucial, isn't it? I wonder if, if, yeah, if you could just comment briefly on that, Jeff. It sounds as though you also were able to find someone who understood your experiences. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I did. So I, I did uh, exposure therapy a, a few times for different incidents. And what I found was the first uh, person I saw was really effective. Then I went through five psychologists before I found one that really clicked with me. And I often talk to people and they say to me, you know, I, I went to, to see a psychologist or a counsellor and I didn't like them, so I didn't go back. And I keep saying, well, you, you've got to keep trying until you find one that gels with you and that is the right fit for you. Hmm. And can I um, pick up there, you, you sort of threw away the comment about prolonged exposure. We, we talked about that, we've talked about it a lot through the series, but particularly a couple of episodes ago. So if you haven't listened to episode four, uh, do give it a listen because we talk a lot about prolonged exposure. But that process, of course, uh, which I know Ginger and, and you both went through, is, is difficult, isn't it, and painful, but you thought it was important to confront these experiences and memories? I think it's, it's essential professional help. I, I, one, of the, one of the things that helped me most was to recognise that this is an injury or an illness and to start thinking about it like one. Y- you wouldn't try and treat cancer by yourself or a broken leg by yourself. You'd seek the appropriate professional help and take their advice. And that's the way I've looked at um, my illness all along. I found that exposure therapy was essential for me because it took the power out of the memories I was having. And so after a while, instead of reliving every single um, thing that was that was on my mind, they just became bad memories, which which is the, the entire point. Um, and then after a while, I was able to experience feelings again and emotion again, all these things that I'd repressed for a very long time. And I found that um, once the power started to go out of the memories, um, things like the, the excessive drinking started to drop off as well because that was a symptom of the PTSD. Such, a, such an important message, isn't it? It's not about forgetting what happened. It's about reducing the in, in, in crippling emotions, really, that are associated with memory. Would you go along with that, Ginger? Was that your experience too? I would just wanted to say what, something that Jeff just said is really powerful about seeing it like an injury. Like I remember Professor Megan O'Donnell saying to me, this is like you've really injured your ankle and you need to run a marathon. And she kind of got really stern with me and said, if you don't get fit you are not going to be able to run this race you know and so then I took the exercises she was giving me really really seriously and a lot of it was cognitive behavior therapy stuff so reframing things um, in a way that made sense to me and practicing like practicing what are you going to do in this situation how are you going to cope with it when it comes up next time how are you going to answer these questions that you're going to be asked you know I'd, I'd love to come back to that um that that reframing, that reappraising. I will come back to that in a minute. I just want to come to you, Sarah, because um, Jeff and Ginger both went through this process of what we call prolonged exposure of confronting the memories. But really what you were saying at the end of your chat before was exactly that, wasn't it? Except that instead of doing it formally with a therapist, you were able to confront what had happened over and over again with, with loved ones, with people who care about you, with friends and family. Was that an important part of the process for you? I think so. I think personally speaking, I think if I just buried it and not talked about it and just shut it down, it would have eventually simmered to the surface at some point. And so I I think the more I talked about it, the more I could process and the more I was able to sort of remove myself. I mean, I was in the comfort of my own home back in Australia, far, far, far away from where it had happened to me. So um, in, in that sense, I think it was really important that I talked about it, that it did sort of 
process and, and understand, hang on, because I wasn't back there. So I needed to sort of emotionally work through it in my head in order to be able to deal with what had actually happened. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, if we think about how most pe- most of us, really, most of the time when we go through difficult things, how we get through it, that's exactly what we do. We process it in our heads, we talk to people and so on, we're able to do it. Sometimes those memories are so powerful and so distressing that basically the body or the brain shuts down, as Jeff says, you know, just feel numb or we block it out, numb it with alcohol or whatever, and it's just not possible. In those cases, then we, we absolutely need... Uh, some professional help. Um, let me come back to what you mentioned before, Ginger, and that was the idea of identify. Well, I, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I think what you're saying was the idea of identifying thoughts and beliefs and appraisals that were perhaps not very helpful and were getting in the way and challenging them. Was that is that what happened? Yeah. So, and also when I would have really angry or negative thoughts to actually have phrases ready to go. So for example, um, all through that period, a bit like what Jeff was describing, I'd just be so angry with my children all the time. And, um, you know, I was having relationship difficulties as well. So I would have this self-talk, which was about, um, I'm a shit parent. I'm not good at this. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't have had children. And so then reframing it, um, that's like, none of that was actually evidence-based at all, really. So um, Megan was helping me with reframing it. So um, actually, you have spent hours on your book week costume this week, so you are a good parent, you know. And I would start having these um, helpful phrases and helpful framing ready to go until I could do it automatically because I was – that's only one example, but I was doing that in every aspect of my life. So some of it was about the trolls and the threats and the shootings and other things but some of it was about my relationships and my kids and so it just seemed like everything was bad and and, and these thoughts that that are so unhelpful and so destructive they just seem like facts don't they they just seem they seem like facts they pervade everything and they go round and round and round and i still use it now like i i mean i am still reporting on very traumatic stuff so i'm reporting on for example at the moment child exploitation material um and it does bring back all this PTSD stuff and I still use these thoughts now like why is this important why do you want to do this what are you trying to achieve you know with I would sometimes be like why why are you even reporting on this you know no one's even going to read this book and then I would have a phrase ready to go which is like I need to make the internet safer Mm. you know Mm. so yeah, yeah trying to get it in some kind of perspective. Exactly, exactly. Um, Jeff, did you do any of that, what we would loosely call cognitive therapy, or we called it cognitive processing therapy a couple of weeks ago, but did you do any of that stuff uh, looking at your thoughts and so on? Uh, yeah, we, we tried. I, I didn't actually find it overly helpful. The, 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 main, the main driver for me was, was exposure therapy and really to depower those memories. So, so part of my experience was that I couldn't relate anything I'd experienced to anyone other than the people I'd been in Afghanistan with. And the only time I would ever talk about the war was when I was drunk and then we had a very good social circle. If I even tried to, I, I would start talking about it, you know, when I was quite intoxicated and people just were aghast at, at, at what the war ha- had delivered and... Um, so I found it very hard to connect. Yeah. One of the relatively common after effects of, of experiencing trauma sometimes can be guilt. Guilt about the fact that you survived while others didn't or guilt about the way people behaved or whatever. It was my fault or that kind of stuff. And that's where we tend to use 
cognitive therapy or this this kind of challenging some of those thoughts more than we use exposure so really i was just asking wh- whether it came in helpful there or which it didn't and i and i accept that entirely but yeah. the only time that that it was probably more helpful than not mark and, and we discussed this briefly is for, for the most of the trauma i experienced uh, exposure therapy was really really um powerful and helpful when with the with the incident uh, involving the children I didn't talk about that to look for about seven years after the war and I thought I had no drama with it at all. I was just fine. And then one day I was talking to a journalist in the city at a cafe and I just broke. It came out of nowhere and I was crushed and I burst into tears and I couldn't get out of bed for four days or more. Um, but at least by that time I'd recognised what had happened to me and I, I booked straight in with my GP. I, I made a, another appointment with a psychologist and a psychiatrist. And then I went to exposure therapy again. But the interesting thing is the more I talked about that incident with a psychologist, the worse I got. And eventually I just got to the point where I said, I, I just don't want to talk about this, this particular incident anymore. And we just put, we put that aside. And I think that was the right way to treat that specific incident. And, uh, and I think that that is the difference between moral injury and PTSD in that they present very, very similar, but you need to be careful with what treatment you're using. Absolutely. I mean, it'd be really nice to, to have a whole episode on moral injury as well, which is a term, a phrase that we're using more and more now to to talk about these kinds of reactions that, as Jeff says, you know, they look a bit like PTSD. They're, they're, there's undoubtedly an overlap, but they're really about... Um, fundamental values and so on that have been shattered by the experience but i think the point you make there jeff is really important and that is how important it is for us as therapists to tailor our treatment to the individual not assume this is what i use and that's what you're going to get with you like it or not but rather to to be sensitive to to what's working and what's not um I just want to say, can I just say one thing just about this? I guess I'm just thinking about how I and and my handling, I guess in in a funny sort of sense, I mean, my experience, obviously, totally different to Ginger and Jeff's, but I guess I sort of reframed it. And rather than having survivor's guilt, I was sort of quite empowered by what I went through. I I, I guess I, I felt fortunate that I was able to go through something like that and see what it was like and how and how I reacted and how I coped. So I actually found that quite empowering. I mean, a lot of people said, oh, I don't know what I would have done if that had been me. And I would say, you'd be surprised what your body's capable of. And I'm just lucky that I've lived through something that has tested my capability. So yeah. it, I guess in that sort of sense, I yeah, there was no survivor's guilt. There was almost sort of survivor's empowerment in that yes. sense, which I guess is just reframing it, which probably goes back to me being the optimist. Well, that's true, but I still think it is a reframing that's really important. And I would argue again that your your willingness, albeit initially a bit um, unsure, but your willingness to talk about these issues and talk about what happened is part of the process of sorting it out in your head. It's making sense of it. It's kind of being able to appraise it in an adaptive kind of way. It certainly sounds for you, uh, Sarah, as though social support or spending time with people who cared about you was an important factor in recovery. Would you, uh, the others say that as well, Jeff or Ginger? I mean, I would. I have an amazing social circle and a lot of love around me and I definitely had the support of good friends. But there was a degree of what Jeff is talking about as well. Like the guys that I got deeply embedded with, you know, are really violent and dangerous and dark. A lot of them are truly psychopathic. And so it's really hard to talk to people about it. When I would say I've had a hard time writing this book, people would go sort of say shit happens. You know, I couldn't really get people to understand what it had actually been like, like what 
the content of that book and what I experienced was like. So I really found I couldn't have done it without the post-traumatic sort of health specialist. Like I needed that very, very specialist support. That's what, that's what helped me. And also the normalization of that behavior. Like when Megan said to me, oh, this is what all journalists in your situation do. I found it really helpful and normalizing. And the other thing she said was exercise. I found exercise amazing. I mean, I would then you know, I often feel guilty about, because I work for myself, taking time off to run. But she said, you have to run, you have to run, you have to go to the gym. And that was amazing. Uh, you're reading my mind, because that was my next question. Did you say? <laughs> it was very important for you. What about the other two, Jeff? Did you feel that looking after yourself physically, whether it was exercise or getting enough sleep or eating right and so on, were those components important for you? I think they're important, but I really struggled to, to do that because I, I was really unwell. Um, and as as I got professional help and the, and the treatment was was improving my mental health, my physical health was, was getting better. And I'd always lived a fairly fairly healthy lifestyle anyway, so it was just a matter of of getting back to it. Mark, can I just pick up on something that Sarah mentioned a minute ago? And it's because, it's because potentially I disagree with with the orthodoxy. Sarah, Sarah said her experience was different to ours, and I think that's a really important point because. You can't, in my experience, you can't compare trauma. It doesn't actually matter how you broke your leg, you know, whether I did it in Afghanistan or Sydney, the, the, net, the net result is the same. And I think, you know, having listened to Sarah and Ginger, their experience is broadly the same as mine, regardless of how we got the injury. And I wouldn't swap either of you. You know, at least I got to choose yes. where, where I was. <laughs> yes. I mean, it, it's an interesting point you raise that one of the things we find consistently is that um, independent of the nature of the trauma, the psychological impacts are surprisingly similar, you know, and you'd think they'd be completely different. But something, this is, and it speaks, I think, to the kind of uh, evolutionary nature of these kinds of issues, that this is part of human psyche, really, yeah. Um, can I... Anyway, we, we, we generally rate um, the physical side very important, particularly exercise. There's more and more evidence that exercise and mental health go hand in hand. But as you say, Jeff, you know, oft, often that's extremely difficult to, to do. But if you can, it's good. Can I just pick up, Jeff, on um, what we touched on in our introduction, which was your uh, work with um, Disaster Relief Australia and the role that that might have for returning service men and women to be able to do something meaningful and useful and so on. Would you see that uh, having something meaningful as being an important part of recovery? I think it's essential. Uh, it, and it doesn't just apply to veteran, it applies to just about anybody because we der- derive so much of who we are from what we do. And if you look at the, the impact of, you know, young, young kids joining like the, the NRL or elite sports and getting injured or people leaving the emergency services, or if you're a career journalist and you, you lose your job and suddenly, you, you know, you've lost your identity. Um, and we, we can reduce symptoms of mental illness. And remember, not everybody gets PTSD. There are people who had exactly the same experience I'd had in Afghanistan, they're fine. Except when they leave, they tend to experience a struggle in finding, you know, well, what am I going to do with my life now? And the, 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 the trick for us is to turn that into uh, a positive. So, well, what are you going to do with your life? You know, the world's your oyster. Um, and give them a, a community around them that supports that, that, that mentality uh, and a sense of identity and belonging and um, responsibility and purpose. Yeah, exactly. Having meaning, having something meaningful in our life is so important, isn't it? And work Work does often fulfil that, whether it's voluntary work or paid work, it does often fulfil. Were you able to get back to work fairly quickly, Sarah? Well, I wasn't, I wasn't actually working because I was coming back from overseas. So it was my, I was coming home after living abroad for four years. So I had that time to sort of 
rest and repair before. I think I, I went, I eventually went, I came back on December 30th. I don't think I returned to work or started work until like May. I took some, a great deal of time off and went and stayed with family up in Queensland. And yeah, I took, I definitely, uh, I actually went to Byron Bay, which everyone thought was crazy. It's like, why would you want to come back from a tsunami and go to Byron Bay? <laughs> but I wanted to see my family. So yeah, no, I, I had a, quite a bit of time to, to rest and repair. It's very interesting. And and again, you know, it does talk to, to how we really need to look at everybody's needs differently, because generally speaking, I'd say routine and structure and meaning, meaningful activities is, is really important, but it it doesn't work for everybody. I have one more question that I want to ask, but before I do, um, are there any other comments on, on anything that we haven't talked about that you thought was really important in recovery? Yeah, Ginger. I was just going to say on the back of um, making meaning out of what's happened, I think is really important. And so for me, the thing that almost made it worth it for me and was the social impact, like I could see the conversation changing. I've seen new legislation that's being drafted, um, lots of positive things happening so that I feel like the trauma was worth it. And I'm also just listening to Sarah and Jeff speaking. I was thinking about empathy and how sometimes these experiences can really make you have empathy for other people and actually make your life a lot richer. So when other people are coming to you with these kinds of traumas, I think you respond to them differently and that's quite powerful. Jeff, definitely in your work, but Sarah, just from listening to you speaking, you know, and I've certainly felt like that myself when people are writing to me about these issues, I've got a different level of empathy for them, I think. No, no I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. I, I was going to actually, yeah, make that point about Jeff as well. So, so Jeff, you're, you, you have done so, uh, a huge amount of good work for the veteran community and so on, assisting them in various kinds of ways. Do you see that as part of the, your, your own recovery? Oh, no question. Absolutely. It's, it's the same formula that we apply in Disaster Relief Australia. It's about helping yourself through helping others. And, and we know that if I go to a, a veteran or an emergency first responder and ask them, uh, I'd say to them, I'm here to help you. They'll say, I oh, know thanks, I'm not interested. But if I ask them to help somebody else, they are out the door in a heartbeat. And that was exactly the same for me. Yes, yes, yes. That's very, very interesting, isn't it? So my final question, you've already answered, really. I, I was just going to say, looking back now, did any good things, um, any positives come out of the experience for you? But, but I think probably you've all kind of answered that. Would anyone want to add anything further to that about uh, whether there were any any good things that came out of it? Well, I guess just like I said earlier, I guess that survivor empowerment, I, I, you know, when people say, when they hear my story and they're like, oh God, I just wouldn't have been able to cope. It's like, no, you'd be surprised. And, and feeling in a sense grateful that um, I guess I went through something like that. And it, it you know, it, it does, it, it makes you value, you realise that things in a split second, in a heartbeat can be taken away, turned upside down, um, and, and realising, you know, I'd like to say I don't sweat the small stuff. I do. But, you know, I, it's a nice little reminder sort of thing. And, and we're here for, for a good time, not a long time. So to absolutely make the most of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Look, I'm so sorry that time is running out. We we could easily devote a whole podcast to each of the three of you today. It's been extremely valuable. I'm very, very grateful to you for sharing your experiences. I've got no doubt that they'll be extremely valuable, not only for other people who have been through some kind of traumatic experience, but also for, and very importantly, for health and mental health professionals who are working with survivors of trauma. So I'd just like to um, quickly run through what I think emerged today and also in the previous episodes in this podcast series 
that, that are important in recovery. So first, I think that everybody agreed today on the importance of being able to confront what happened, to work through the memories. And that might happen formally with a therapist using something like prolonged exposure, which uh, both Jeff and Ginger did, or it might be informally with our naturally occurring support networks, which is, is what Sarah did. And I think there's a, and I think probably Sarah actually said it, that blocking it out, pretending it didn't happen is generally not a great route to recovery. And I think related to that is the importance of trying not to avoid places or activities that might be very difficult or anxiety-provoking. And I know that's difficult, but more broadly, um, staying engaged with life, staying engaged in work and enjoyable activities. And this idea of being able to reclaim your life, I think, is, is an important concept. We talked about the importance of social support more broadly, having family and friends to support to uh, to provide support through through what is often a very very difficult process um, we talked about that there is often a need to challenge some of our unhelpful negative thoughts to to maybe reappraise what happened and how it happened and to to make sure that we don't get bogged down in in, in repetitive and unhelpful negative thoughts and, and rumination we talked about how looking after ourselves physically is a really important part of the picture, particularly exercise, but I think also uh, sleep, getting enough rest, eating well, moderating alcohol use and so on. Very importantly, we talked about not being afraid to get professional help if you need it. And uh, and I think, as, as Jeff said, you know, taking the time to find the right therapist, someone that you trust, someone you can relate to, someone who knows what they're doing in treating traumatic stress. Don't be afraid if you don't get on with a person, you don't feel that you, you can trust them. Don't be afraid to find somebody else. That's absolutely fine. You've got a right to choose your own health provider. And finally, I think sometimes it, it is important, I think it's helpful sometimes to, to consider whether there are any positives that uh, have come out of the experience for you. So at this point, I'd like to thank our three guests very, very warmly. Thank you very much to Ginger, Jeff and Sarah for sharing your experiences with us today so openly. Thank you, all of you. Thank you. Thanks for having Thanks. me. Thanks for having me. So that was the last in this current podcast series on trauma and mental health. But hopefully we'll be able to do some more on different mental health topics next year. So do keep an eye on the MHPN website for more details and also for some links to some very useful resources. For now, though, my name's Mark Creamer. Thank you all for listening and I hope you enjoyed the series. Visit mhpn.org.au to find out more about our online professional program, including podcasts, webinars, as well as our face-to-face -face interdisciplinary mental health networks across Australia. 